dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're toppling your to-be-read pile with classic book retellings and adaptations. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to fall. Yay, fall. (laughs) (laughs) So excited for fall, both in novel pairings and in life. (laughs) Yeah, we're recording this in August, so the temperatures definitely haven't dropped to a fall-worthy state yet, but there's always something to look forward to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mentally, I'm in fall for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. And yeah, literarily, (laughs) yes, (laughs) we're in fall. Um, We are super, super thrilled about our fall season. We're talking about adaptations this season. So just to kind of connect all of our classic reads and our content thematically, We are reading Persuasion, Macbeth, and a contemporary novel, which is new for the podcast. We're reading The Chosen and the Beautiful. Uh, This is a Gatsby retelling. So on this feed, public episodes like what you're listening to now, we will share those discussion episodes and more TBR topplers and nerdy reading tips and a bunch of adaptation-themed content, which I'm really excited about, Sarah. Me too. And then... If you love talking about books, thinking about books, thinking about how classics and contemporary in conversation, or if you just love adaptations, this would be a great time to join our Patreon community for the fall semester. Over there, we are starting what we affectionately call our Novel Pairings University. Um, And that's just a bunch of content that goes a little bit deeper into our theme and into the books we're covering on the big show. So we have educational content like classes and discussions. We have context-driven bonus episodes. We host a book club of all of the books we discuss on the main feed. So if you love learning and wish you could be back in the classroom this fall, you should absolutely join us over there because it's going to be a lot of fun. So plenty to look forward to on the main feed, but if you want to go deeper with us, check it out. That's at patreon.com slash novel pairings. You can look at the membership tiers and sign up. We would love to have you over there for the fall semester. Yeah, we have a really fun group of nerdy readers who just bring up such smart bookish conversation. And I think that all of our adaptation conversations are going to be delightful and delightfully nerdy. So, okay, Sarah, this is our first episode in our fall season, and it's our first episode about adaptation. So before we share a bunch of new releases I think that we should just talk a little bit about adaptations and retellings in general and why we love them and why we wanted to talk about them on the podcast. And I'm grouping retellings and adaptations together because I don't think there's a ton of distinction between those two anymore. No, a retelling is a type of adaptation. Yeah. And We are talking about, on this particular episode, we're talking mostly about classic literature being adapted into contemporary literature. So we're talking about books primarily, but we'll be talking about film and TV and 
podcasts and different mediums in the future of the podcast. But Sarah, why do you enjoy contemporary retellings and adaptations? And why did you want to talk about adaptations for this season? I think that this was your idea. Okay, well, this is it, this is funny because I'm just feeling a little cranky today. <laughs> I, I think I just didn't get very much sleep. And so I'm like, do I like adaptations? I have things to say about adaptations. <laughs> so, Which maybe, listeners will love. So yeah. go for it. We go get off. It. I, will, I will go off on what I don't <laughs> like about adaptations too. But I'll start with what I do love and why I thought this would be fun. So... I mean, I think the whole premise of our podcast, right, is that that literature remains in conversation with each other. Like everything written today is in some way influenced by the literature that came before it. For adaptations and retellings, that's just more obvious. Um, The authors are referring directly back to the source material or to their inspiration or remixing something old to make it new. But I mean, all of my favorite contemporary literature, I feel like I can say, oh, I see a little bit of like the veins of Virginia Woolf in this or a little bit of um, a little bit of Jane Austen in this or, you know, there's just that's that's the way I like to read. And so I thought adaptation would be a fun way to to do that with our community, both on the podcast feed and in Patreon. And I think that adaptations and retellings are they, they're just a lot of fun. Whether you love the the particular one or hate it, there's so much to say about adaptations because you get to talk both about the work itself um, and what it's referring back to and and like how those two texts are communicating to each other. They're fun to read because like if you are familiar with the classic text, it's almost like it's almost like a a gamer finding Easter eggs in a game. Like you get to go through and check off like, oh, that must be like her version of that great scene in The Great Gatsby or whatnot. And and that makes the reading a real joy too, I think. Oh, I love that. I So we have very different reading tastes, but I think retellings and adaptations are often somewhere where we overlap quite a bit. And something that I know we both really enjoy in a book is a unique structure mm-hmm. or just noticing structure as we're reading. Mm-hmm. And I think that adaptations really allow for that reading experience. You know the structure of the original story. And so getting to see what an author does differently, whether that is the structure, do they actually do anything with the structure to change it or are they just sprinkling some things in to make it contemporary or changing the setting. I think that's a big part of why adaptations are so much fun. And then I yeah, I I think that adaptations like you said are fun because there's something familiar about it. There's a comfort level there and just getting to sit back and watch the twists and turns of the story unfold. It's why I love reading romance novels. I know how it's going to end. I can just enjoy the ride. And there is something very comforting about that reading experience. And then I just think there is like this deep part of us as humans who appreciate that kind of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Think about 
oral stories being passed down from generations to generations to generations. Those are adaptations. The, we don't know what the original story of very many things might be because they were told and changed over time. And so there's something I think very visceral about that storytelling experience that we as humans really like. We like recognizing the familiar and building on it and seeing those changes. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great way to put it. I know I talked about this when we uh, did our Odyssey episode, but when I heard Madeline Miller speak a few years ago, she talked about how there is no original story. There's only adaptation when it comes to mythology. And so she sees herself, she's the author of Circe and Song of Achilles. She sees herself not as retelling classic myths, but as part of an ongoing teller of these stories, um, working, you know, alongside Homer and all of the people who've told this story over the ages, which is really cool. Um, speaking of Madeline Miller, I think she does a great job of one of the other things I enjoy about adaptation, which is seeking out some of the, like the untold parts of the story, which is a funny thing because we're talking about fiction here. So there is no like other side of the story because it's not a real story. There's only what the original author presented, but then authors can take that and really show us how important point of view is to any given story. So, um, I think reading The Chosen and the Beautiful is going to be really interesting because The Great Gatsby is a book where the point of view is so important to what we see and don't see and how we understand the characters. So retelling that in a different format um, from a different perspective is going to be great. So I I really enjoy thinking about point of view um, and like our... Is this character really who our narrator tells us they are? And what are the clues there? And and I like it when authors explore that idea. Sarah, I would love for you to get salty (laughs) and tell us what you don't like about adaptations or just, you know, go off on any kind of rant you want to. I'm I'm here to listen. Okay. Well, in response to what I just said, I don't like it when authors of adaptations get the book wrong. <laughs> like get the original text wrong. Like when they're just like either because every adaptation is also an interpretation of the source material. And so if they interpret it wrong, then I don't enjoy the adaptation. And you know, my English teacher part of me is like there aren't there's no one right way to interpret any text. But there are wrong ways to interpret texts, which is when you, you know, take something not based on the source material and like, you know, and build your interpretation around it. I don't really like, you know, I'm being mostly snarky here. What I mean by wrong is when an author really has a different interpretation of a text than I do then I have a hard time reading the adaptation. So um, a recent one, I, I and I enjoyed this. I read Beautiful Little Fools by Jillian Cantor. That's a great Gatsby retelling. I think Jillian Cantor woefully misunderstands the character of Daisy and just like decides to invent a completely different Daisy for the purposes of her book. And I, I don't like that. I mean, there's so much to do creatively within the structure that you're interpreting that that bothers me. And then 
in extension, then I'm like, why are you even doing an adaptation? Just write the story you want. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to name that character Daisy Buchanan. Just name her something else and write a different book. So I I think also sometimes I wonder, and I think largely this is probably because of um because of the book marketplace that off that sometimes maybe we are getting adaptations because it's like, oh, a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. I will read that rather than, oh, I'm interested in this particular story about this community. I'm going to read that. And so I think it's maybe a way for authors to very smartly get different readers to their books. But that makes me a little bit sad in some cases because I think maybe this didn't have to be an adaptation. Like this was just a great story with some of the names of classic lit characters. Um so th- those are my <laughs> those are my cranky thoughts about adaptations. I don't think those are very cranky at all. <laughs> so I would like to see you on a truly bet. Okay. <laughs> Come talk about books, but <laughs> um I think that you bring up something that I say we that I think artists and pop culture this is kind of coming to a head right now, right? Yes. Because IP is like everything. Yes. Yeah. Because there are just a bajillion book to movie, book to TV adaptations happening right now. And it just often feels like, is anybody ever going to tell an original story again? Are we just going to be watching everything that we've already consumed, whether it's a remake of a movie to a movie or it's a book to screen adaptation, it just feels like we are getting the same things over and over mm-hmm. again. And so I I think that that's a really fascinating point to bring up with how that might also be influencing the publishing world mm-hmm. and how it's all just feeding this beast. And yeah, I think... and. I think there are a lot of, like you were saying before, I think there are so many stories that have echoes of a classic or that just reference a classic, but they are completely uniquely themselves. Those are not adaptations, but mm-hmm. there's there's still that sort of feeling there. Yes. So yeah, I think I think it's wonderful when authors experiment. I'm here for a lot of retellings and adaptations. I think they're they're super fun. But I do worry, not so much in the book world quite as much, but I do worry about how it's impacting art. Yes. At large. Yes. And we we have not, neither of us have watched the new Persuasion movie on Netflix yet. We're waiting. We're going to do a watch along um, after we read the book together. But even that, from what I've read, like, I wonder, like, that could have just been a Regency romance romp. It didn't have to be persuasion, probably, because it doesn't seem like it was very true to the tone of the book. So, like, that's that's an example that um, we'll see. We'll see if we agree with that take once we watch it. I'll give another example. This one, this one might be controversial, but this is a book that I love. I I love and adore this book. I assigned this book as summer reading to my classes. I am so glad this book exists. But I think about this with Pride by Ibi Zavoy. Like, mm. I think that book is fantastic. It's not my favorite Pride and Prejudice retelling. I don't 
think it feels very Pride and Prejudice to me, other than the plot beats and some of the character names. I think it's a phenomenal book. And and I don't begrudge her her retelling. Like, I, I think that's fun. And I think it probably was easier for a teacher like me to assign it because I'd be like, oh, it's a Pride and Prejudice retelling and we're going to talk about that in addition to. So I, I think that there are great reasons, but that's just, so I'm not even saying I wish it was a different book, but that's an example to me of a book that I thought was phenomenal and wondered, did this need to be a retelling or could it have just been more on its 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 own thing? Um I don't, I'm not even saying I have an answer, but I have come across some works like that where I'm like, how much did this need to try and fit into the world of retelling versus um, being, you know, its own great story? And I do, I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like we don't appreciate authors who really truly do want to write a retelling because they love the original yeah. story. And that might be the answer so to Pride. Yeah. Like she just loved Pride and Prejudice and wanted to write a retelling. I think there are many authors for whom that is the case. And, you know, I don't know, maybe we should get into the Let's get TBR into our toppling part yeah. of this because I think that we'll end up connecting some of these threads that we're bringing up as we go through these books that are coming out now because just for one thing, there are some big authors who are writing retellings. We've got a Barbara Kingsolver book on this list. And I just, I don't know. I There's a lot of really interesting stuff happening with this topic. And I'm, I'm overjoyed that we picked it for fall because I just think we could keep talking about this for ages. Okay, well, let's get into these books. Um, most of these are coming out in fall, but but a couple are out already. Um, one that's out already, this came out in June, is Epically Earnest by Molly Haran. And I'm going to let you talk about this because I know you love the importance of being earnest. I do. It is one of my absolute favorite plays. And it's hilariously funny. It's just a romp. And so this book, Epically Earnest, is YA. And it's a little spin on Oscar Wilde's story. And I think it's interesting for authors to adapt a play into a novel format because that has its own structural trickiness to it. This is YA. There is an LGBTQ plus cast of characters. It's described as a comedy of errors, which is just appropriate for the original play. And just based on some reviews, if you do not love quirky teenagers, this is probably not the book for (laughs) you, but Oscar Wilde's sense of humor is pretty quirky, so I feel like it probably at least fits well with his general vibe. So I also know there's found family in here. It kind of follows the plot of the importance of being earnest in that there's, there's a baby left at a train station and... Um, This character is trying to find their birth family. And so there's this concept of identity and figuring out who am I and what even is my name? And that's all in the importance of being earnest. So I have not read this one yet, but I saw it while scrolling Bookstagram and thought, okay, well, I love the importance of being earnest. And it's, I don't know that I've seen very many Oscar Wilde inspired retellings or adaptations. So this is one that I would 
give a chance to if I needed a little YA to just sort of um, lighten up my reading life. Because this is definitely more of like a light, fun read. I think this sounds really fun. Um, I don't think I've seen an adaptation or a retelling of Importance of Being Earnest. Um, and it's such a like short little work too. It, it There's a lot that could be filled in and played with. So um, also we've got to do that one on the pod sometime. Because there's mm-hmm, so definitely. few, there are just very few funny classics. <laughs> so yeah. that would be a joy. Well, the next couple on our list are not funny. I don't think they're very dark and gothic, which is perfect for a fall reading mood. So Sarah, what's up next? Okay. What Moves the Dead by T. Kingfisher. So T. Kingfisher is the pen name um, of Ursula Vernon. Um, Ursula Vernon writes um, middle grade, I think. And then when she writes for adults, she uses T. Kingfisher um, and writes I haven't read any of her books, but I've seen them around a lot. And I think that, I mean, she writes mysteries for adults. I think that a lot of them have like some vaguely supernatural, maybe touch on horror sort of things. Um, but they're probably people like screaming at their, you know, earbuds right now. Like, that's not true. I But I'm just going to say it anyways. <laughs> it seems like it's true for this novel, at least. So I am very excited about this one. This is a retelling of The Fall of the House of Usher. I think retelling short stories into a novel form is a great thing to do, too, similar to like some a short play like Importance of Being Earnest because there's so much to be filled in. And the characters in Fall of the House of Usher are such archetypes. Like you can really do a lot with them um, without like verging too far from from the story. So this one sounds like at least early on, it's like a fairly um, faithful retelling. Um, I'm really excited to unpack that term (laughs) over the semester. But it follows a character named Alex Easton who is a soldier, rather than hearing that their friend Roderick Usher is ill, they're actually friends with Madeline and rush to uh, the house of Usher to see what's going on with Madeline. And then I love this sentence from um, the the cover copy because I feel like this just sums up exactly the Poe story. What they find there is a nightmare of fungal growths and possessed wildlife surrounding a dark, pulsing lake. I mean, I feel like Poe could have written that line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, it sounds like it's going to be a really creepy mystery. Um, and Alex brings in some people to help figure out what's going on here. And it's short, less than 200 pages. So a nice little novella length horror ish book to add to your bag for October. Um, This is out earlier than October. It just feels like an October read to me. It does. That cover gives me nightmares. It's a creepy cover. And it it looks like it goes with like all of T. Kingfisher's covers. They all look in this vein. Which is cool. Yeah. But I, yeah, it gives me shudders. But it also... (laughs) It really sounds like Mexican Gothic by yep. Sylvia Moreno Garcia. So if you liked Mexican Gothic, this sounds like the perfect one to pick up. And then Sylvia Moreno Garcia actually has a retelling out on uh came out July 19th. 
And it's based on The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Did you ever read that one? No, I've read some H.G. Wells, but not this one. Me neither. I So back in the day when I was watching Orphan Black, I remember that there were a ton of references to Dr. Moreau. And there was like a whole season that was really quite inspired by The Island of Dr. Moreau. It plays a huge role in that show. I just don't, that was a, you know, enough years ago that I don't fully remember how and why with all of that. But anyway, this book by Sylvia Moreno Garcia, it's the daughter of Dr. Moreau, and it is set in 19th century Mexico. And like the original, there are a bunch of scientific experiments. There are secrets. Takes place in a hot, humid jungle. It's going to be creepy. Um, Based on the orphan black references that I remember, there's sort of this like uh, genetics kind of vibe going on. And so, I, I mean, I think if anyone can adapt this story into something creepy and wonderful and kind of twisty horror, it's Sylvia Moreno Garcia. So, yeah, I think if the T. Kingfisher novel sounded good to you, this would be another one to pick up for a similar vibe. The Daughter of Dr. Moreau by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. And it's it's already out and ready for you. All right. Um, next up is a Shakespeare retelling. These are super fun. So Ben and Beatrice is a retelling about a retelling of Much Ado About Nothing. Do you love Much Ado About Nothing? I do. I do too. I love this play and I love the Joss Whedon adaptation of it. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, I know Joss, Joss Whedon, he's got his issues, but that movie is so good. Uh, the actors are The really actors are fabulous. so good. And apparently they would just like drink and put on Shakespeare plays like for each other for fun. And then they were just like, oh, let's film this one day. And they just like filmed it over a weekend. That's why it's in black and white because they couldn't like color coordinate the whole. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, But this one actually sounds like maybe um, a little bit inspired by that film, too, because it it takes place um, at a Cape Cod mansion over like one week i and the the play is in a condensed timeline too but that like everybody's staying in one house thing um sounds fun so um ben and beatrice a a retelling of um of much ado about nothing so we have beatrice she is queer and biracial she is super smart very political um and headstrong and then she has her her sweeter um maybe more docile cousin hero who's her best friend and they're spending a week at this cape cod mansion and ben is our benedict character um he and beatrice have a little bit of a past Ben um, is from a very conservative family, and that causes friction between him and Beatrice. And then, you know, the story goes from there. Um, This is one of Shakespeare's um, comedies. So it's, you know, not going to end in like an epic, um, tragic, gory <laughs> anything. Um, this it's probably going to be fun if it stays true to the the tone. Um, it's described as both razor sharp and 
swoon worthy. Um, so I think that's a great way to describe the original text. And I am excited to see if this one holds up. So that's Ben and Beatrice by Catalina Gamara. Okay, I popped another Much Ado About Nothing adaptation right after this one, even though it doesn't come out until November, because just group the same kind of retelling together. But Two Wrongs Make a Right by Chloe Lise comes out in November, uh, I believe the 22nd. But remember, these dates are always subject to change because publishing is still a wild roller coaster of a ride these days. So this one, I wasn't able to gather a ton of details from the blurb about sort of uh, twists to the story. It just sounds like a very, like this is a contemporary much ado about nothing. And that's what the story is. And I love that. And so we've got two main characters. It's enemies to lovers. And I, I think that so many romance novels are sort of uh, much ado inspired, whether or not they intend to be, just because that enemies to lovers, like we met one time and we hated each other and now we're back in each other's lives. <laughs> it's so, it's such a good story. Yeah, it it's is. such a good story. And so I also think that this particular play lends itself well to contemporary retellings because there's like all of these other friendships and relationships going on and you can really create a fun cast of characters in a novel like this. And that's what it sounds like Chloe Lise has done. I, like I said, I couldn't gather a ton of details about setting and stuff, but I will say when I'm looking at the reviews on Goodreads, some really big, popular, some of my favorite romance authors have written glowing five-star reviews about this book. Ooh. And Chloe Lee typically writes really great neurodiversity rep in their novels. Um, I believe um, that Chloe is autistic and typically writes autistic characters. I don't know if that's the representation in this book, but um, yeah just based on these reviews, particularly from the fellow romance authors. I'm really excited about this one. And yeah, gosh, I mean, I, I go back and forth about my favorite Shakespeare plays all the time, but Much Ado is definitely up there. So Two Wrongs Make a Right by Chloe Lise. I'm definitely going to read that one. I actually have it on my Kindle right now. All right. Well, this next one, I... I'm very interested in and also didn't realize that it was part of a remix series. Like I'd heard about the, um, is it the Bethany Morrow? Um, yeah. yeah. The Bethany Morrow Little Women re remix. But that's like number four or three in this like mm -hmm. remix classic series. There's a lot um, to explore there. So um, I'm excited now to learn about that entire series. But this one is Self-Made Boys, A Great Gatsby Remix by Anna Maria McLemore. Um, okay, I have to admit, this is one when I read the description, I was like, did this need to be a retelling? Like, could this be its own story? But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, I think this might be really smart and I'm really interested in picking it up. So um, there are a lot of um, important identity markers for these characters. And I'm afraid that if I um, just tried to summarize my reading of the cover copy, I would get it wrong. So I'm going to read some of the, the cover copy here. Um, it's set in New York in 1922, which I'm going to come back to that because I think that's interesting. Um, 
we have Nicholas Caravio, a 17-year-old transgender boy from Minnesota who has no interest in New York City's glamour. Um, going to New York is all about establishing himself as a young professional, which could set up his future and his life as a man and benefit his family. Nick rents a small house in West Egg from his 18-year-old cousin, Daisy Fabrega, who lives in a fashionable East Egg uh, house with her wealthy fiancé, Tom. Nick is shocked to find that his cousin now goes by Daisy Faye and has erased all signs of her Latina heritage and now passes seamlessly as white. Nick's neighbor in West Egg is a mysterious young man named Jay Gatsby, whose castle-like mansion is the stage for parties so extravagant that they both dazzle and terrify Nick. At one of these parties, Nick learns that the spectacle is all for the benefit of impressing a girl from Jay's past, Daisy, and he learns something else. Jay is also transgender. All right. I'm going to stop there. There's a little bit more in the cover copy, <laughs> but um, so I think that this sounds so interesting. I love that it's still set in the 1920s because that's a great setting. Um, but while I think that modern contemporary retellings are fantastic, I think it's really cool to to think about okay, people of color and transgender people existed in these historical contexts too. And so I love that the story is going to give voice to that and focus on those characters. Um, the reason that I like really came around as I started reading more about this is The Great Gatsby is all about passing, but it's about passing in economic spheres mm -hmm. rather than racially or through gender or whatnot. So I think that's going to be a really smart um, and interesting way to think thematically about similar but very different ideas and identities and I'm excited to check this one out so this is self-made boys a great Gatsby remix and it's out September 6th I think either in our seminar we could bring this up or this might be worth a bonus episode conversation but I think it would be really interesting to actually talk a little bit about the distinctions between what's a remix, what's a retelling, what's an adaptation and what's inspired by. Ooh. Because this is all lingo that publishers use mm -hmm. when they're developing the blurbs, developing the marketing for some of these books, these classic adaptations. And so kind of figuring out how to decipher what exactly that means and how faithful, air quotes, <laughs> we think it's going to be to the story or not. Um, I, I just think all of those sort of different definitions might be might be fun to discuss. All right, Chelsea, we are only halfway through our list. So <laughs> <laughs> let's let's keep going. But <laughs> there are so many adaptations coming out. I can't just I honestly I, it kind of blows my mind. I think this was really fun to just see how prevalent this is. All right. So next up, we have a retelling or adaptation from Sally Thorne, who is a big contemporary romance author. She wrote The Hating Game, which was recently turned into a movie. And it's just really beloved by the romance community for her rom-coms. And I feel like she, with The Hating Game, is an author who sort of turned a lot of non-romance readers onto romance through rom-coms, through that kind of cartoon cover. So, okay, this book sounds fascinating to me. It is Angelica Frankenstein Makes Her Match. <laughs> 
And I believe that this is a contemporary because the copy talks about how for generations and generations, the Frankenstein family have basically been tailor-making their spouses. And everybody's paired up, except for Angelica. And she's like, you know what? Everybody's so happy around me, and I would actually really like to be part of a couple. And so she resurrects her potential beau, but he like wakes up and doesn't have any memory of who he is. And she's pretty intrigued by this too. So they are kind of sidetracked and embark on an investigation to figure out who he is when another love interest enters the picture. So this definitely sounds like a fun rom-com romp with a lot of nods to Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And I am fascinated to know just exactly how Frankenstein inspired it is. But we're really exploring sort of science and emotion. And I think exploring romance through this lens is really fascinating. Um, Sort of like tailor-made love. Like, can you create someone who's perfect for you compared to do you need to just randomly meet someone? Um, I, yeah, I am really curious to see how the themes of this kind of spin match up with the themes of the original text. And I saw... Uh, this described as Sally Thorne romance, witty banter meets Tim Burton. And I thought that sounds so fun for fall. This comes out in early September. I think it'll be out by the time this episode releases. And it just sounds like such a fun book. That does sound fun. Totally original, even as maybe right? an adaptation, which is so interesting. Okay, well, this one sounds less original. <laughs> we'll just quickly mention this. But... um. There is a book called Ithaca by Claire North coming out. Um, And on Goodreads, it says Ithaca and then in parentheses, Penelope number one. So I think this is going to be a whole series about Penelope, who is the wife of Odysseus, the uh, hero, anti-hero, prominent figure of um, the Odyssey. So um, this takes place while Odysseus is fighting the Trojan War. Um, I think 17 years after his disappearance. So he's, you know, out on on the sea or maybe in Calypso's cave or something. Um, And Penelope is fighting off all of these suitors. It sounds like it's going to be sort of like a coming of age. Like Penelope is very young when Odysseus first leaves and she's kind of come into her own sort of ruling and managing this kingdom of Ithaca while he's been gone. Um, I'm curious about this. I I think I'm at a point. I, you know, you know, I'm a mythology girl. I read all of the retellings. I think I'm kind of saturated. I think I'm kind of at a point of like, it's got to be doing something really interesting and innovative for me to pick up another um, mythology retelling right now. And so I'll probably let some people vet this for me and then see. But um I know not everyone feels the same way. There are other people who are still like really eager to gobble up any mythology retellings. And um, I think that that a deep dive into Penelope is a great thing to explore. Um, I love Margaret Atwood's The Penelope Ad, but that's a really short book. And so something that's going to be a, an ongoing series and really get in depth into that character should be should be pretty interesting. So that is Ithaca by Claire North, and it's also out on September 6th. I was wondering about the saturation. 
Yeah. There. Like, uh, I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm kind of over these two unless it's something that someone's like, oh my goodness, it's amazing. But not everybody can be the next Madeline Miller. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. They just can't. <laughs> they just can't. She's <laughs> She's got something special for sure. <laughs> Okay, so this one, I started out thinking like, oh, I don't know if this really interests me. And then part of the copy got me. So <laughs> this is Hester by Lori Lyko Albanese. And I, I don't know for sure if I'm pronouncing uh, her name correctly. This has Echoes of the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it features Isabel, who is a gifted seamstress. And she's married to an apothecary who is addicted to opium and takes her to the new world. And there she meets young Nathaniel Hawthorne. So I was like, I don't know. I don't always go for retellings or adaptations where the author is the significant part of the story. Um, So anyway, she's supposed to kind of be his muse, I assume, for Hester Prynne. And so I'm like, I don't know, but then I got to this paragraph. In this sensuous and hypnotizing tale, a young immigrant woman grapples with our country's complicated past and learns that America's ideas of freedom and liberty often fall short of their promise. Interwoven with Isabel and Nathaniel's story is a vivid interrogation of who gets to be a real American in the first half of the 19th century, a depiction of the early days of the Underground Railroad in New England, and atmospheric interstitials that capture the long history of unusual women being accused of witchcraft. Hmm. And then I came around Mm -hmm. and I was like, actually, this might be kind of interesting. I might be into it, especially for fall. This comes out in October. Um. That sounds really interesting. I haven't read, I mean, this sounds like something even different than this, but I don't think I've read any Scarlet Letter retellings. And I know that there are quite a few. Um, so this sounds, you know, get me, you got me with witches. I'm not exactly. saturated <laughs> with the witch material yet. <laughs> so, all right. All right. Um, what about some Kingsolver? Okay. Barbara Kingsolver. How do you feel about Barbara Kingsolver? I haven't read any Barbara Kingsolver, actually. Oh, okay. I've I'm read kind it. of like, maybe, I feel like I should, and then that makes me not want to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I had to read the Poisonwood Bible in school, and I think, I think I would have liked the Poisonwood Bible had I read it not for school, and I went to a religious school where I, <laughs> I don't think my teacher understood the critiques that were happening in the Poisonwood Bible (laughs) and maybe read it a little bit like more straightforward. Anyways, um, I do like her writing a lot and this one sounds really interesting. So this is Demon Copperhead. It is a retelling of David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. It's set in Southern Appalachia and it is about um, sort of like in the same way that David Copperfield is about surviving poverty when the odds are stacked against you. Um, it follows um, our main character. He's born to a teenage mother and follows him throughout his his life um, and kind of how he is um, is committed to his small, his his rural life, his rural community. Um, 
even as you know more and more people are gravitating towards the cities and and kind of ignoring this part of the country. Um, I think this one sounds really interesting. I I. I'm going to read a little bit of this part of the back copy because um, I just think it's it's interesting. So in addition to giving a little bit of the summary of the book, the publisher's copy says, many generations ago, Charles Dickens wrote David Copperfield from his experience as a survivor of institutional poverty and its damages to children in his society. Those problems have yet to be solved in ours. Dickens is not a prerequisite for readers of this novel, but he provided its inspiration. Um, And it goes on from there. And that makes me feel like this book might end up being a little too didactic for me. Um, If that's kind of how the cover copy is coming across of like, this is what I'm shining a light on. I don't know. But I think Barbara Kingsolver is a great writer and somebody who like, if you've enjoyed her other books, um, I think a lot of people would be willing to give her the benefit of the doubt and at least see what's up with this one. And um, I don't know if I'm going to be rushing to read this, but I am intrigued. Um, I'm not a huge Dickens fan, but I think that retelling Dickens is is interesting. Um, It's a very different kind of classic to retell. So I'm curious about this one. Speaking of didactic... (laughs) Uh, I don't even know why I put this one on the list, to be honest. But uh, October 25th, there is a book called Marmee coming out. It's by Sarah Miller. She also wrote Caroline, which was about Laura Ingalls Wilder's mother. Mm -hmm. And so this is Little Women from the Perspective of Marmee. That's all I have to say about that. I will not be reading this. You can listen to my thoughts on Marmy, um, in our Little Women episode, I do wonder if now that I am a mother, maybe I would be a lot more gentle with my criticisms of Marmy and how much I disliked her. But I don't think so. I just, eh, she's just so preachy, and I didn't like it. That's the summary. <laughs> so maybe this, maybe this book will kind of. Uh, provide that essential perspective on who she is and really flesh out her backstory in a really lovely way for Little Women readers. And so if you love Little Women, this is definitely one to put on your list. It's just not for me. But it's Marmy by Sarah Miller. And I I never read Caroline, although I loved the uh, Little House on the Prairie books when I was a kid. Um I just didn't have any desire. I, I know that they're problematic and I just didn't really have any desire to uh, read an updated adaptation. So anyway, that's Marmy out in October. <laughs> well, we're really going to sell some, <laughs> some of these books here. <laughs> Contact us about uh, placing ads for your book yeah. <laughs> podcast. <laughs> All right. Last up. Pride and Protest by Nikki Payne. So you can tell in the title, this is a Pride and Prejudice retelling. Gorgeous cover. Um, this is out November 15th. Um, it's categorized as romance. It. I don't think it's YA. It looks a little YA, but I don't think it is YA. Um, or maybe it is. No. 17. It does really look YA, though. 
Well, the cover really does. Yes. The characters are very much adults, though. So I have a feeling that it's probably not YA. So it follows um, Liza B., who is a DJ in Washington, D.C., and she meets and spars with um, Dorsey Fitzgerald, who is one of the like people moving in and changing her her gentrifying neighborhood. Um, this to me, I think this might be one that I'm reading this and I'm like, why is this Pride and Prejudice? Like, it doesn't seem, it seems like maybe, maybe it will would make sense, obviously, if you read the book. Um, but it does sound like a good book, um, a good romance. What One of the details I love in here is that um, our Darcy character, um, Dorsey Fitzgerald in here, is the adopted Filipino son of a wealthy white family. And so he's always felt really out of place in his um, world of wealth and privilege, but clearly still has some of that privilege. Um, I think that the topic of transracial adoption in in literature um, is I I've, I feel like I've seen more of that recently, and I think that's a really um, interesting topic to explore in fiction and nonfiction. I, I like reading about that, um, and I think it's an interesting um, way to adapt a Darcy character um, into modern story. Um, I don't I. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Somebody who's less than comfortable in their sphere, maybe. Um, so I don't know. This one sounds like it could really be like maybe a great book, but not my taste for a Pride and Prejudice retelling. Or maybe it would be great in both of those contexts. But I'm I'm curious about this one. And I will be very eager to see what romance readers and Austin fans think about Pride and Protest by Nikki Payne. Do you think you're going to read this one? I think so. I think it's probably one I'll pick up on audio. Mm, Yeah. Um, But I mean, I do kind of understand the Austin connection here because Jane wrote so well and her commentary on class and crossing classes and uh, sort of the strictures of society, changing society. She was so sharp and so good at that. Mm -hmm. And so I can see why authors who want to echo that part of Austin call upon her for retellings and bring her into the novels um, a little bit more. I, yeah, there's something to think about there. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's that's a really astute point um, about, you know, what Austin is doing and and um, a romance that is tackling those subjects like m- might make very good sense to be an Austin adaptation. And like you said at the beginning, like authors can do whatever they want for whatever reasons they want to. Um, and I'm I'm curious about this. I wish we could have you know somebody from public the publishing world on because I I wonder. Do you think there are ever books that an author is like working on and then their editor is like, what if you like changed this and this, <laughs> and it could easily become a fill in the blank adaptation, and it might like it might sell better. 
Do you, I mean, do you think that ever happens? Or do you think that Probably. authors... Yeah. I don't... I mean, we have no way to know. But I'm I'm curious about that. I think probably more often it's that authors have their classics that they love, that made them readers, that inspired them to write. And they want to return to those texts in their own interesting ways. Um, but I'm just, just something I've wondered about. I also... I think there's a conversation that we as two white women are not equipped to have about authors of color calling upon some of these classics by really popular, iconic white authors um, because of publishing and the bias Mm -hmm. that exists there. And there are layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of that discussion to get into. And so... Yeah, I think there's a lot to think about, and um, I can try and dig up some resources specifically from authors of of color um, around that discussion. But if they if they exist, but um, yeah, that's I, I don't feel equipped to get into it. But I think there's definitely a lot to talk about there. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting to see both on this list and um, other adaptations. Um, retellings that that from authors of color or queer authors that move some of these stories into contemporary life and ones that that um, make visible those identities in the original context of the classics. And it's it's cool to see both of those things happening through retelling and, and adaptation. And um, yeah, I just I think it's going to be really interesting throughout the course of our next few episodes and these next months to talk about books as and stories as adaptations beyond just as individual works and and what that means. So lots already to think about and to research. And I just got a lot more excited for this whole this whole season. Me too. We've barely scratched the surface. We have so much coming up this fall for you listeners. So just to remind you one more time, we are reading Persuasion this month for September. We are reading Macbeth in October, and we are reading The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nevo in November. You can look for links in show notes to get access to those books. And the theme for this season is adaptation. We have nerdy classes. Our community is ready for more readers to join in the fun. We will continue these conversations in abundance in Classics Club. So go to patreon.com slash novel pairings and become either a literature lover for $5 a month to access bonus episodes on Fridays or a literature scholar for $8 a month to access bonus episodes and virtual events like classes, book club discussions, more of this in-depth nerdy content. And readers, if you feel like you're missing our announcements, so say you're listening to this episode and you're like, I had no idea what you were reading this fall. We get it. Social media is really tricky these days. If you follow us on Instagram, you might not always see what we post. So the best way to get our Content, our announcements, our calendars is to sign up for our newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. So we will still be sharing stuff on Instagram at novelpairingspod, but novelpairings.substack.com is absolutely the surest way that you can get our announcements and just previews of our content and everything important to know. 
As we get back into our podcasting routines, a huge way to support the show is by writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. We've been away for a little bit, which means we haven't gotten a ton of new reviews, um, and it would make a huge difference for the podcast and for us to help new readers find us if you were to write a review um, on any podcasting platform where you listen, um, but Apple Podcasts is kind of the default there. So thank you so much for helping fellow readers find our show. Thank you, as always, to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to discuss Persuasion by Jane Austen and pair it with some contemporary books. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.